1: Hello, welcome to IntelliCast. This is one of my favorite um, intros to record because it's our best stuff. That means it's closing down the year. We get to goof off a little bit. Um, if you're listening to the best stuff, we really appreciate it um, because these are interviews we conducted earlier this year, and I, these are the best ones. I I didn't. I used to have more say into what the best stuff was. You guys p- pick them perfectly. So. I'm excited about this one. This is part one of our best stuff of 2022. And today we have Craig Alker and he is the consumer insight. He works in consumer insights at Bon Secours Mercy Health. He's local in Cincinnati here, been on the client side for quite a while. Um, Really interesting conversation we had with him. And then I think one of the more important interviews we had of the year was Brooke Reevy. And we met her at, um, and association. She's in Chicago. She's an associate professor of marketing at Dominican University. Um, and we spoke a lot about kind of the future of privacy and legislation and our industry. I think if you haven't listened to that one, it's probably a must listen. Um, it's right. a little long, um, but we didn't hold back on that one. We wanted to kind of do the whole story. So it's a little longer than normal. So I'm glad we put them the best of because I think it's super important. Um, I so, agree. Yeah. yeah.
0: That Brooke one, if you have not listened to that, if you're to listen to anything of our two best ofs, listen to that.
1: But to get to it, you have to listen to Craig, was awesome right. as well. I love. Um, so without further ado, here's Craig Alter. And then after that, uh, Brooke Reevy. And as always, thanks for listening. Joining me now, I am excited to have Craig Alter. Craig is the, uh, he works in Consumer Insights at Bon Secours Marcy Health. Craig, how are you, sir? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited. We don't get a lot of client-side researchers uh, to talk about it, and it's a world I don't really know, honestly. I've only worked supply-side my entire career, which is about 25 years. I've worked with a lot of client-side researchers, but I'm excited to talk to you today, Ken, about challenges you face, and maybe we can talk a little bit about differences in supply-side and client-side, uh, but maybe we should start with giving us a little bit of your background and, and maybe how you started the marketing research also. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, so
2: I'm kind of on the opposite side of where you've come from. <laughs> My experience in in market research has always been on the corporate side. And obviously I've worked with a, a ton of suppliers, small and me- medium and large, And uh, but I've always been on um, kind of that corporate uh, side. Um, I've been... Working for about 25 years or so, I, I went to Purdue University and was a business major. And I didn't start out in market research. So I my first uh, job um, was in Cincinnati with Fidelity Invest- Investments. So I was a stockbroker and I went through the series six and seven and 63. And I learned all about mutual funds and stocks. And I did that for a while. And, and then I found my way to United Dairy Farmers. And I, I got into marketing there and um, ended up being a, a director of of marketing and got a lot of exposure to kind of that dairy business. Um spent about five years there. And then I moved to Luxotica, uh, who owns Lens Crafters and Sunglass Hut and Pearl Vision and got into that kind of optical glasses, sunglasses space. But I started in um a finance role and kind of spent some time in finance and uh, sales audit. Um, and then I ended up kind of discovering a market research opportunity at Luxottica. So then I spent about 10 years in a market research capacity at Luxottica. And that exposed me to kind of the large research companies, you know, that you see in the industry, the, you know, TNS and Millard Brown and GFK and um, global research. Um, And then I, I moved out of the eyeglass business to a company in Cincinnati called Advanced Pierre Foods, which ultimately was purchased by Tyson Foods. And so I was able to do different types of research, you know, get into more product testing and innovation. Um, it was less about uh, media and advertising, and more about kind of uh, innovative new products. and uh, And now I'm at Bon Secours Mercy Health, so I've got my foot in the healthcare space, and I've been here uh, for three years.
1: So impressive! Wow, what a crazy background. That's awesome. Uh- Already, I'm already going to go off script and ask you a question I hadn't thought of until now. Yeah. Um, your story is similar to so many that getting the market research in that you did not go to Purdue University thinking this would be your career, right? You were in finance and you kind of stumbled upon it. And that is so common. I mean, nearly everybody in our entire industry has that same story. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is this a good thing for our industry that we have people that come from very diverse backgrounds that kind of stumble upon it, or would we be better off with people that are like more traditional maybe paths to careers in that they have a marketing research class or sophomore year in college and then spend the next couple of years training for marketing research, which many other fields have, but we don't really have that, and I tend to think it's kind of an probably a little bit of both, but I think ultimately it's more of an advantage and disadvantage because we get people that think differently, have different backgrounds. I expect you use your finance background to solve business problems all the time. Um, Am I crazy? What are your thoughts on this?
2: No, I I think you're right. I I think it's a mixed bag, but it probably skews a little more towards the positive historically. And, you know, because I had roles that were in marketing and were in finance, I think that was good background to landing in market research. And I could kind of pull from those past experiences, you know, because you're in a in a way, you know, market research is very analytical and dealing with numbers and data. But then you're also generally working a lot with um, communication with marketing folks. And, you know, it's nice to kind of have background in those worlds. But, you know, it's interesting. I agree with you that historically that's what we've seen. A lot of people have kind of found their way into market research. But I almost get the sense I have a son in college now. He's at Purdue and he's a marketing major But he's thinking about a career in market research when he gets out of school. And I've talked to other kind of younger people who are kind of in that high school and college age. And I almost feel like the industry is resonating with them. You know, it wasn't a thing I was aware of, you know, 25 years ago. I didn't know that was a a job and I didn't know that there was any and maybe there weren't any classes that were really tailored to that. But I feel like today um, you can uh, get exposure in college to market research opportunities and that path and that, you know, the classes that might set you up and prepare for it. So I almost wonder if it's going to change a little bit as we, you know, those that are going through school now, I think you will find more people than historical that will start out in market research. You know, my son's already asking a lot about like, hey, I'm a marketing major, but I really like what you do. That sounds really interesting. Like maybe that's what I'll look for as soon as I get out of college. I'll just start in a market research capacity.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And it it may, we, we can probably talk an hour just on this topic. But, you know, if you want to work in marketing research, typically you're a business major of some sort. And you might need a statistics, statistics class some sort of questionnaire design or methodology class. And sometimes those classes might be in social sciences instead of the business college. And so, I don't know, we might need some adjustment and pressure from, from people to maybe make that career path a little easier from a student perspective rather than, you know, switching colleges. Maybe that seems like a challenge.
2: Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I, I think, there's more opportunities and exposure to consumer insights, market research with people going through college today than there were when, you know, you and I went through school. So, I, you know, I do think that the industry has set itself up a little better than it was, you know, a couple of decades ago to, hey, this yeah. is a this is a function. This is a career. You know, here's you know, what it is. And I think you're going to get more people than we used to get. Go right from school into a market research type role.
1: Well, I want to kind of continue this discussion and maybe we kind of shift it to more professional development, Um, but I'd love to hear what challenges you face as a corporate researcher. And again, that's kind of a world I don't completely understand. I kind of get a sense of it from the questions I get from people like you, but I don't really understand what your day-to-day challenges are. So I'd love maybe something high-level overview. We might dig deep on some of it. Yeah, I I think that, uh, you know, my
2: gut tells me that those on the supply side have more opportunities to attend conferences and have training and professional development. And those, um, they have a lot more exposure to what I would call professional development within market research. I I think it's harder on the client side to kind of get that okay through the organization to attend a conference and to, you know, Get professional development and training, so I, I don't think those opportunities are are there as much, but I think that um, some of the challenges you know in a corporation is really you're not sitting around a bunch of market researchers who understand what market research is and can do um, you know in healthcare i'm a department of one, and we don't have a long history of doing market research, so I think a lot of it is about kind of selling in um what market research can do to help us um, move forward? You know, what questions can we get answered from consumers? You know, how can this make an impact? Um, So I think you're always dealing with, you know, a challenge of trying to sell, you know, what, what is the impact that market research could have? You know, why should we spend some money, spend some time, take this step to listen to consumers? Um, It's just not something that's uh, the vernacular is just not there. We just don't have a lot of people, especially in healthcare, that have had exposure to market research and what it can do. So I think you're always faced with that challenge a lot of times in corporations. I mean, it's different if you're at a P and G, if you're at a company that has an established, you know, decades of running market research projects. You know, that's different. You know, but in a lot of industries. Um, it, it's somewhat newer and it's, um, you don't have a lot of people who have had exposure to it and know kind of what it can do.
1: Yeah, I, I would think in particular, like your role, and there's a lot of people kind of in your role as a team of one, a research team of one. I could not even imagine the kind of questions you get, uh, the challenges you have, um, explaining research and research principles and the advantages and disadvantages of each. Um, we have challenges with that, and we sit around a bunch of researchers right that's all we do is talk research um, and we have challenges those same challenges, but someone whose focus is in finance or a brand manager or in um, a CMO, the questions have got to be ranged from don't understand our industry at all don't understand research at all to some people probably have a very good understanding of it and um, probably know enough to be dangerous, right? Like who are your who are your like primary like stakeholders, I guess? Who who would you consider to be like, is it a chief marketing officer?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know, historically, you know, my main uh, internal um uh, folks that I've worked with and that I would call internal stakeholders have been people that are sitting in a marketing capacity. But you know, in, in healthcare, um it can evolve to more clinical um, people asking questions. It can be doctors and nurses and operations, and it can move into things that are really outside of, of marketing. Um, it's still predominantly folks in marketing, um, but you know those opportunities come up throughout corporations too, or it's not always someone in marketing. It could be operations. It could be someone that is affiliated with, you know, with stores. And um, so you do have a, a a nice wide range of different people that might come to you. But you're right; the, the questions can be, uh, you know, they, they almost sometimes don't know what what to ask for. You know that there isn't an, an understanding between qualitative and quantitative, and when you might use one format versus another, and they aren't going to understand. Why it might cost so much? You know, <laughs> when they, when they might look at an RFP, you know, what's driving all these costs? You know, why would it be what it is? And so there is um, a level of uh, communication and discussions that you have that are different in a company like a healthcare company that might be different from, you know, a, more of a CPG c- company that has a lot of people who have been exposed to market research and don't really ask some of those questions. You know, they kind of get it.
0: Craig, with some of that stuff you're mentioning, it sounds like you almost have to be an expert on everything. if they're going to be asking questions since they they're not going to be as familiar with quantitative versus qualitative versus should we go online survey? should we do a online focus group or an in-person or this or that? How do you kind of stay ahead so you're able to answer those questions? or do you have to leverage a lot on the partners or vendors you work with to help? answer those questions?
2: Well, I think at this point, it helps that I've, I've been in market research about 15 years. So I, I think I've gotten to the point where I can answer most of the questions, but certainly um, there are some details that I would need to partner with uh, the supplier and get a little more granular. How, how better to explain something to kind of in layman's terms, you know, what's a good way of kind of explaining, um, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here.
1: That kind of similar to my question, Brian, is that I would think most brands don't really think in qual or quant, but as a researcher, that's how I was trained, that's how we're thought, it's very unique, different kind of methodologies and skills, but they have business questions, right? Mm -hmm. And you try to provide a solution to answer that business question, and there's various ways you can do it. but. I think we have an advantage today in that it used to be Qual was like an in-person, it was a focus group, it was a one-on-one interview. And Quant was a large base size, probably a telephone interview of some sort. But those lines have blurred so much in the last few years with technology innovation and all the things we've done. I don't think in the future, we'll think about it as Qual versus Quant. It's more of a solution to answer a business problem. And if the base size is 30 or 80, I mean, we can do kind of about anything, right? Do you think that'll help us in the future?
2: Yeah, I think so. I I think I've become aware of over the last, you know, five plus years of so many different kind of approaches that combine quant and qual in one project and really do a good job of tackling both. You can really kind of do a study that's maybe a little more qual, but still embed some quant aspects and then vice versa. There's a lot of quant approaches that do get into some nice, you know, qualitative techniques. And um, I think that hybrid approach is great because at the end of the day, what you're trying to accomplish for the person that's your internal stakeholder at a corporation, you're just trying to get them the, the best information possible to answer those business questions so that you have something actionable that you can then, you know, push through the organization and make it a positive change, you know, and so it, and it shouldn't, you know, they don't care about the methodology or it is on the researcher to go out and find the best approach, find the best technology, find the best, you know, methodology, the best supplier to work with, you know, because you're just trying to
1: answer the questions in the best way possible that makes the most sense to to you. And also one, one thing, Brian, you mentioned is that you kind of have to be an expert in everything. Craig and I have been, we briefly talked about it before we started recording. We've been going to these leadership, I don't know, discussions with Five to fifteen people, and we've just been kind of, you know, having a beer and having casual discussions about challenges and research and leadership and professional development. And somebody from Procter and Gamble was one of them, and said that he considers himself to be a business leader with a research backpack. And I think about that all the time. I bet Craig probably thinks of himself the same way too, in that he's more than a researcher. You're really you want to be a leader in the in, this, in the in your company. You want a seat at the table for decision making and maybe research is not the way best way to describe ourselves. Maybe we should be better at describing ourselves as business leaders and we have a big backpack of research at our, you know, disposal to try to help solve business problems.
2: Yeah, you're completely right, Brian. And you know, in, in my career, I I guess I think back to my Luxotica times, you know, it wasn't always, you know, the marketing funnel at the executive level that was the end user of, you know, a, a market research, you know, project. So it might not always be the, the CMO. Sometimes it was the chief strategy officer or the chief operations officer, or maybe the president of lens crafters. And so, or maybe someone that's you know, running running stores or running design. And so Um, you know, where I sat, I did kind of try to think of myself as, well, I'm just a business leader, and I'm trying to integrate what I do throughout the organization to whoever that is. And as many people want to consume it all the way up to an executive level, because at the end of the day, I think we all want it to be used. We want it to be actionable. We want it to be impactful, you know, because we want them to come back to us. You know, we don't want to see our budgets cut. We don't want to have any the you know those at the executive level thinking is there value you know in my organization in market research um, or not and so you know I think you do need to kind of think of yourself as um, a business leader you're um, you can embed yourself in all aspects of a corporation and you're trying to at the end of the day um, allow consumer insights to find their way to someone in the organization that can use it make a change, you know, find value. Like, well, that was a good, I'm glad we took the time and and spent the money to learn from consumers. And now I feel like we're smarter and we can make, you know, a
1: positive change. Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to shift a little bit and you're a team of one and you've worked while you've worked at some pretty big brands. My guess is your research teams have been small your entire career. I'm curious how you become a better researcher, how you, um, you know, I think most of us on the supply side we're surrounded by researchers, and we have managers, and we have certain professional, very um, specific professional growth opportunities, and we have people that we can model their behavior, and we can ask lots of questions of How do you kind of do that on your side? Um, is is it through your suppliers? Is it self driven? Yeah, I think it's it's those on the ladder because
2: because uh, I've always been in small groups either one or the the largest I ever had was four of us at Luxotica. so there isn't a lot of learning from our colleagues you know and so it is more of well you can learn by going to a conference um, and you learn about you know trends and tools and techniques and and methodologies and then I certainly have learned from suppliers I, I think probably more than anything for me is you know, I've worked with the small market research agencies, the mid midsize and the large ones. And um, I've always found that's where I've gotten the majority of my learning from, you know, like even when I first started, you know, at Luxotica in market research, I didn't know the difference between qualitative and quantitative. That was one of the very first things I needed to learn. And I didn't really have coworkers to kind of teach me a whole lot. So I was kind of learning from, you know, my contacts at TNS and Milward Brown and GFK and like they were kind of bringing me up to speed on the industry and here's how we conduct research and here's how we get sample. And here's how we, you know, make charts out of data and here's what cross tabs are. And so, um, you know, I do think it's very different when you're in a corporate role, you don't have as many opportunities to kind of ask the guy next to you. like, Hey,
1: help me understand this better. You know? Right. And that's, That's such an amazing perspective that I don't think that most supply side researchers understand Um, that you're doing a lot of other things than just research at a, at a brand, at a, at a client side company. And you don't have the training. I think most of us kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking for myself. I think we have a lot of admiration for client side researchers. You work at cool brands, big brand names, and I don't know. I've always felt like that was a really cool job to have, even though I've never done it. Um, So knowing that a lot of people don't have the same path to get to that role and they aren't classically trained in research, but they're also closer to the ultimate decision maker in the research. That's, that's probably some challenges.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, this conversation, because uh, you know, it's, Being on the corporate side all my career, I've always felt like, well, it would be really cool being at a supplier because they have exposure to so many brands and so many companies, and they're always traveling around the country and they're getting to have exposure to many channels and many brands. So that would be cool. Where, you know, if you're on the corporate side, maybe you've got a couple of brands, you know, maybe two to four or something like that. So it's limited. But then I've always had conversations with those in market research on the supplier side that says, have said, man, it'd be great to be on the corporate side someday because when we turn over a project, like we just don't know what happens to it. We don't see the evolution of like when those on the corporate side start sharing it and um, watching it actually go into action someday, you know? And we're not a part of those conversations. It's like we put together the PowerPoint report, we send it off to you, or maybe we get a chance to present it one time, but then we're done. We move on. And so, you know, I, it's interesting to hear you know those on the supplier side say man it would be really fun to kind of watch the evolution of consumer learnings over 6 to 12 months and watch them actually get impl- implemented at a company and something done with it you know and so you know we miss kind of seeing the finality of where a project starts
1: oh i completely agree it was one of my biggest struggles when i was a full-service researcher in that role when I was sending the PowerPoint deck to the client, and I, the the time I would feel most fulfilled is when we did a package test or something with new product development, and I saw it on the store shelf maybe two or three years later. But you know, by then my 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 role might have changed, or I'm on a different brand, or I'm doing something different. I'm like, wait a minute, I did research on that. That's pretty cool, but that's like three years later, you know, because we know that that process takes forever um but yeah it's it's a big challenge on the supply side is we think we do really cool research we've spent a lot of time thinking through the implications and doing pretty charts send it off and then you know all right what's next and we'll never hear but yeah that's a big challenge i think for everyone
2: yeah i agree um you know and i've heard other you know supplier side researchers tell that that same story of like, you know, yeah. we may see something on the shelf years yeah. later, and it's like, oh, yeah, I worked on that, where it's a little more immediate on the corporate side. You know, I've worked on a lot yeah. of advertising campaigns, and then, you know, the television commercials on air, and I, I'm like, oh, I was really involved with that research strap, you know, that path. We started with focus groups, and then we moved to copy testing, and here it is on TV, and I was involved in that ride, or I've worked with, you know, with products, you know, at Advanced Pure Feuds, and, you know, being it at, at the beginning where we're looking at trends and then we're making prototypes and then we're testing it and then a product's on the shelf, you know, I was along for that whole ride. And it's kind of cool to kind of see within maybe a one year time frame where you started with ideating around what could be a new food product. And then, you know, a year later, the package and the product on a shelf, you know, at a grocery store, and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And it and you see it within maybe a year
1: and you kind of were along for that ride. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, You've worked at, um, I call it Mercy Health uh, for the past few years. Uh, Are there any unique challenges to healthcare? I couldn't even imagine the challenges of being a researcher for a healthcare company. Is there anything kind of unique that you've learned over the past few years that are new challenges or additional challenges?
2: Yeah, I, I, we've kind of talked about being a department of one and, you know, I have a smaller budget than I've had in other places I've worked. But some of the other challenges that are unique to healthcare is, uh, you know, you're dealing with HIPAA um, yeah. <laughs> laws and you're dealing with just the private nature of discussing health. Like I've done some focus groups um, at Mercy Health and, and you get into some some interesting areas that are, uh, you know, um, difficult discussions, you know, that are dealing with private health issues. And so it it's just, it's just different. And you're walking a, a thin line sometimes on what is okay to ask about, whether it's quant or qual and what's maybe not. You know, how maybe do I need to ask something in a more private nature rather than a group setting? And so I just think you're getting into some uh, uncomfortable conversations sometimes. And and you know, again, you're you're dealing with in healthcare less people throughout the whole organization that are familiar with research, you know. One researcher, and then you know, even a lot of the marketing people, and and really certainly when you get outside of marketing, you've got a lot of people who have always been in healthcare. So they haven't had exposure to market research. So you have that challenge of, you know, here's what this is, here's why it makes sense to kind of take some time and spend some money and do some research. And here's kind of how to understand it. So I think storytelling becomes a big part um in healthcare, a key ingredient of trying to boil research down into, you know small bullet points and and not getting caught in the weeds around methodology and approach it's more about here's what we learned you know on a slide or two and here's what we can kind of do with that learning to to maybe make a positive change
1: one more random question we'll remove if you're not prepared to answer this one um for those locally in cincinnati you all have the uniform sponsorship for our mls team fc cincinnati and i think it's what a, but there's no better way in my opinion. I mean, it's just right on the front of their uniform on TV every week. Do you, were you involved in the decision-making process for that or in the measurement of the impact of that in any way at all?
2: I wasn't involved with the initial signing of that. That actually happened right before I joined um, our organization. So the Contract, so to speak, had been signed just before I started. But the measurement of it, um, we do, I do an annual brand equity reputation study. And, you know, that is a question in there is, you know, for Cincinnati, you know, are you aware who the sponsor is of the the FC Cincinnati team? And once we clue those in that weren't initially aware, you know, we ask about that impact. And and really the, the tie is to orthopedics. When you think about sports medicine and orthopedics, you know, we're trying to raise awareness that oh yeah mercy health is a place that i can go to myself or take my kid to um if i get hurt you know if you know we have a sports injury or some other orthopedic need it's not just a hospital that you go to when you're sick like you know it's just trying to get in the mindset of like some awareness that we're trying to drive of like there's some connection to orthopedics which isn't that emergency thing a lot of times it's more planned out i might need my you know, some knee surgery or my hip replaced but um, it's just uh, I think it can have an impact. And, you know, we're still measuring that awareness. You know, we've been doing it, I think, for about three years or so that that relationship. But, yeah, you know, sports sponsorships are tricky, you know, and they can cost a lot of money. And it's it's hard to see the immediate impact when you're asking about awareness in a brand tracking study. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you hope you're business in orthopedics goes up and you can kind of say, well, I think it's because, you know, we, we probably one of the levers is we've been able to get some exposure, increased awareness um, with people who kind of watch sports and they think about us
1: now when they have an orthopedic issue. Right. I I mean, you, the company does so much great things in the community. And so that's just another thing I think that connects uh, the brand with the community, which I'm sure is important. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour about this stuff, but we should probably move on. Um, maybe a couple of fun questions, and we've been bringing them back. Brian's been bringing them back. Um, we, we're doing the original four Ps. We're not doing publics or prints. Nope. <laughs> I'm going to sneak one in. At some
0: point. Maybe we'll bring them, we'll bring public and prints back. Maybe Q4, but right <laughs> now, no. We're going we're going with the OGs.
1: Okay. So we took the marketing mix. Um, four Ps, and we kind of made it its own thing to try to get people uh, to understand them a little bit more on a personal level. I know Craig has thought about this, which I'm really excited about. Um, The first P is performed. What is something that most people don't know about you? Do you have any hidden talents? I do play
2: piano. So I um, was exposed to that when I was young. Uh, I remember my mother really wanted me to Have some musical skill. And of course, you know, when I was, you know, sixth, seventh grade, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was go to a weekly piano lesson, you know, and I remember just not enjoying it there for a couple of years. But one thing my mother always said, is, she's like, I think you're gonna um, thank me someday you know, and I, and I didn't really understand it at the time. And, you know, I just thought, well, this is just a hassle. I'd rather be playing sports. You know, I did, it didn't feel cool to take yeah. piano lessons, but she was a hundred percent right. Cause now it's something I've learned and it's a, it's kind of a, a hobby or a pastime. And I'm glad I developed that skill at an early age. And so now I can just for some enjoyment, go and play some, you know, some pop tunes that I enjoy, you know, you just, you kind of start off with, being forced to learn like classical stuff and stuff that feels really boring as a young person or these you know these piano textbooks and then but then once you kind of learn the skill and you realize like oh now I can play songs that I enjoy that I hear on the radio and then it, it's kind of fun. Craig right. what's
0: what's your go-to to play?
2: Well you you know I I remember when I was younger I used to like to play Billy Joel and Elton John but um probably more recently I like to try to play cold play songs.
0: Okay.
1: Those are all good. Um, we So most people don't know this, but I've talked about it a little bit of the podcast. I have a second job. I, I'm a trustee in Columbia Township, and we do an annual concert at 50 West, which is in Columbia Township. It's a local brewery most people have heard of in the region. And last year, we had an Elton John cover band, and the guy looked just like Elton John. He was amazing. And this year, we had a Billy Joel cover band. And the guys look just like Billy Joel, but those are so piano driven, um, and so is Coldplay. So those are probably tough songs. I'm not musically inclined at all, but those are probably really tough.
2: Yeah, I think that's the key: is they're piano driven songs. You know, it's a little hard to play piano and do justice to a song where it's you know, you know, the original was a little more guitar heavy or drum heavy. But some of those that you just know are very piano heavy kind of end up sounding pretty good once you
1: learn them. All right, next P pandemic <laughs> well, what is something fun or quirky that you started doing since the quarantine started i always give the example which i'm sure you don't know craig but most of our listeners probably know when the pandemic started we canceled all sports for you know for that summer for a while i was lost and so i found marble racing on youtube through this guy in the netherlands and i became addicted to it and uh yelly's marbles if you google that on Um, YouTube. He's still doing it. It's an autistic kid who does it with his brother. And it's fascinating. I still watch it. Um, That was my pandemic story. Most people, I bet you do have like a more um, useful something they did during the pandemic. I'd love to hear yours.
2: Yeah, that's interesting, Brian. I've never heard of the marble guy. I'll have to look that up. That sounds interesting. Um, I don't know if it's fun or quirky, but um, I've been asked this before, you know, what kind of Thing, did the pandemic maybe uh, change in your life and what maybe were you able to kind of turn into a positive? And, you know, I I'd always had jobs where I commuted into the office every day until the pandemic started. And I've been working from home since and um, I've been able to basically take that hour and a half that I used to have with a commute time and go to the gym. And so I've been pretty diligent over the last two years of of going four to five days a week and carving out and basically taking that hour and a half. And, you know, and it's often during the day and I just go and I and I go work out, you know, I belong to a couple of gyms. And uh, so I feel like I've gotten a little healthier and I've been able to kind of carve that time into my day because, you know, when you're not getting home until six o'clock and you've got the commute, it's hard to kind of fit that in to the evening. So being able to kind of be flexible and working from home and just being able to kind of uh, work out has been something that is a positive that I think I came out of the pandemic for me personally.
1: Now, that's a good one, and you know, working at a wellness company, I'm sure that uh, that's encouraged. Um, so um, that's that's a great way to spend that time. Um, next P is pampering. Do you have any indulgences? You know, I I've always
2: loved traveling, and my whole family has, so it's something that we are good at, you know, we'll make sure that we'll spend four weeks a year away and seeing the world and taking our kids off and along with us. So I like to spend money on experiences. And, you know, we love, you know, whether it's going to the movies or whether we're we're going on a big week trip somewhere. um, I just, I'm a big proponent on kind of um, pampering my family with um, experiential type things. We just recently got back from a week in Utah hiking and it's just, Spending money, I think, on, on traveling and going places and experiencing all that there is in the world is kind
1: of where I like to kind of pamper myself. That's a great one. Um, same, and I have not done hardly any traveling in the past couple of years. And then last P, pastime. Um, what do you do when you have free time other than travel, other than piano, other then work out?
2: <laughs> I um I like to play golf, and uh, my son plays high school tennis, and I did as well when I was younger, and so I, I've been back playing tennis with him. And uh, I really just like being outdoors. I try to work outdoors when I can. I'll take my laptop outside, and when the weather's nice, and uh, we like to we like to hike, we like to to bike. So really just anything outdoors um, is really my favorite thing to do with any free time I have is just getting outdoors and breathing the fresh air and trying to be active.
1: Very good. Man, it's been such a joy talking to you. I really appreciate it. Usually we give an opportunity for people to promote their company or their brand. Um, You can do that if you'd like, if there's anything you'd like to promote. I think a lot of our listeners have heard of Mercy Health and it's a client side company. You're not looking for business necessarily, but (laughs) if there's anything you'd like to promote, now's your chance. Yeah,
2: um, you know, Bon Secours is kind of our East Coast brand. Um, it's, um, in like Virginia and South Carolina. And then, you know, you hear of Mercy Health more in the throughout Ohio and Kentucky. So we're kind of mostly in four states, but we've got around 50 hospitals. And so, you know, trying to grow and, um, you know, dealing with the challenges that healthcare has dealt with, um, you know, with COVID and then coming on the backside with inflation. But um, I think we're doing a lot of good things and we we, we m- make a difference in people's lives, which is nice. We're set up as a, uh, a nonprofit. So we're essentially uh, defined as a Catholic nonprofit okay. ministry. And um, So that's something that a lot of people probably don't know about Mercy Health as they are a, a nonprofit, you know, Christian based or the organization.
1: Very good. Well, Thank you so much. I learned a lot today. It's great to hear that perspective. Um, You're somewhat active on LinkedIn. I'm sure people, if you have any questions for Craig, he's accessible on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you so much for joining Craig, it's been fun.
2: I appreciate it. It's good to talk to you, Brian. Thanks a lot for the opportunity and thanks for having me on.
1: All right. Joining us now, I am super excited to have Professor Brooke Reevy, Dr. Brooke Reevy, at Dominican University, I call her Brooke. Brooke, how are you? Thanks for joining.
3: Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited about this topic. It, um, it came out of left field for me personally. It should not have come out of left field. Um, I love your forward thinking. And so it's been nice getting to know you. And Brooke also serves on our um, Professional Development Education Committee for the Insights Association. She's having a lot of value there. Uh, but maybe let's kind of start off with just kind of a little bit of your background. Is that
3: okay? Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, so, I um, was in the market research industry before I went back for my PhD. Um, I started off as an intern working at was, what was Commerce Bank and is now TD Bank. Um, so, internships, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm on the committee. Internships are super important. Um, I was able to get my feet wet and I realized how much I love the industry. Um, so I started off as a market research analyst there and then um, you know worked my way up. Uh, I, while I was there, I was getting my master's in market research at Temple. And then that master's provided me the opportunity to get into TNS, which is now Kantar. So many mergers and acquisitions over the years. Um, and I started off as a project director and um, worked my way up there um, then I left and went to Hard Hanks for a little while. Um, I, served, I served as a market research manager and it was interesting doing um, all of the direct mail types of analysis and getting a better understanding of how to record and look at, see what promotions are working. Um, but ultimately uh, the, you know, the crazy side of me took over and I quit my job and traveled around the world for a year. And while I did that, I was um, applying for a PhD programs. So I took my GMATs while I was in Thailand. I applied for the different schools in Vietnam. Um, I had my actual interviews while I was in, in India. Um, and then I ultimately accepted where I was going to go to, which was Drexel for my PhD in, when I was in Ethiopia. Um, and then from there, I came right back and went in for my PhD and started studying The thing about PhD school and, you know, in marketing is that it's essentially market research, but like on super steroids, it's just that no Um, one, there's just no real coordination between the market research industry and academia anymore. It's just, we've kind of grown apart. And so um, we learn all the techniques um, that I had learned when I was in working and when I was getting my master's, Um, we just have to learn how to write them up in a little bit differently um, in a different scientific manner
1: interesting um that's that's such an incredible background um and it's hard to segue to your topic that you spoke about the insights association because it's <laughs> you have such a global perspective on everything and an academic perspective and um when i saw your topic i was excited because it's relevant to a lot of what we do and a lot of what we talked about um it looks like its title was diy trends how to plan for many roads ahead
4: mm-hmm.
1: and so i can go in any kind of direction um, I was not expecting the direction that you went, took it in. Um, we, I don't know how to start this. Maybe we start off with, um, I love how you went through kind of the background of marketing research mm-hmm. and how, you'll tell it better than me, but how it, we don't have accreditation and how that happened. Maybe we can talk about that really quick.
3: Sure. Yeah. So, um, So one of the things we kind of have to think about is like from the, you know, where did we start from? And the reason why I always like to look back before we look forward is to get a better understanding. I I am I hated history in high school and I didn't realize that how important it was. It was one of those things that as I got older and I started to appreciate, we need to like, you know, there's no point in reinventing the wheel. And part of what I really liked when I was getting my PhD was that I had to go through the history of marketing. Um, and so I, I learned from a very, you know, um, early time of, of what, what, what happened. Where did marketing come from? Because it's something that I think in our modern era, we just kind of take for granted. Um, yeah. So thinking back, like, you know, going back to where we began, economics is our cousin. Um, and so economics dates back 4,000 BC. And so people were talking about supply and demand back then. Um, and marketing only really emerged um, in about 100 years ago. Um, a little bit over 100 years ago, we broke off. And one of the reasons why we're called marketing is because we were, um, there were economists that were behavioralists. And they were saying that it's more than just that we can't just set price on supply and demand. Because at that point, there was industrialization, we started looking at the fact that, um, you know, the locomotive was really influencing how we could move around uh, supply. Um, You know, it really, it was just something that was just a, a kind of a um, a very busy time um, for theorists to start fighting about stuff. And so there were a group of economists that kept saying, "No, it's the market. The market demands the price. The market is the one that sets the price. It's not supply and demand. It's the market." Because we had um, all of a sudden we didn't we weren't just stuck in our little little villages of where we could get our flour. We could all of a sudden we could get flour from wherever. And we could decide maybe I like the packaging that is set up in a um, or the the type of milling that was going on with my flour from a different uh, producer, and so that was what we, what economists started to see. And so from there, um, economics and marketing broke off, and marketing became its own discipline. Um, and so we started going through um, you know these big changes in history from that. So the first uh, part, part of time was um, was thinking back in, from 1920 to 1940, basically, we had, um, it was like our questionnaire era, and we were going through, uh, th- going through a consensus. And so, um, you know, uh, we have to kind of um, think back to, like, what that actually means, or why we cared about that. Um, well, one of the things is that, you know, trying to actually, actually asking people what they wanted to do, and what they're, what they want, was huge, that was like something innovative for them, because we were still kind of caught in our production era of marketing, as I make this product and you buy it or you don't. And then we started realizing like, oh, consumers actually do have a choice, they do have a, um, a preference, let's start asking questions. Um, and so, you know, for 20 something years, we were just kind of just asking questions and looking at it from a more consensus perspective. Um, from 1941 to 1960, we started looking at more motivation. So we realized that there's actually uh, consumers are oftentimes buying um, for for multiple reasons. Could be that there's, um, you know, a, there's just some sort of, um, you know, they want to be more affluent. Um, they're being you know, they're they're being uh, influenced by their um, neighbors They're being influenced by their family there's more motivations that are actually influencing people to buy. And so that was still something that was not really understood. And that's where we started going into more of qualitative research is we started realizing that asking people and not on surveys, but just to actually sit down and talk to them through focus groups and whatnot was easier for us to get a better understanding of you know, what exactly they want. Um, and then from there, uh, marketing had a crisis. <laughs> it was the crisis time. Um, so from 1961 to 1980, um, it was, uh, this is where we started going and uh, debating whether marketing is an, uh, is an art or a science. And so the reason why that matters is that that was, de- that was the determining factor of whether we were considered um, a discipline in, um, in, a, you know, in a university academic setting. So discipline is um, anything you would major in, basically. Um, So like it would be more of like, are you part of the business administration? Are you part of arts and sciences, all that? Or is it a profession? So marketing as a profession would be more along the lines of like an accounting degree. So, because and you'd have to get certified afterwards to make sure that you have have all of the knowledge of what you should. Um, So the reason why that happened is the Ford Foundation came through and they started evaluating all the different types of business schools out there. And they said, you know, um, like I don't know what's going on with marketing. Marketing doesn't seem to have any kind of a like. There's no real set curriculum going across the board. Marketing is more um, like you know, marketing is more of a uh, is more of a profession, and so it needs to be taught more like a profession. And all of the academics were pushing back and saying, no, 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 it's a discipline. We have theories. We have theories that we that we use. They're mostly from psychology, but there are theories. And so um, that pushback and that going back and forth, for, uh, you know, created this big trend starting from about like 1980s until about 2000, where marketing went on to, into hyperdrive going into um, going, uh, you know, trying to figure out like that they're market oriented and that we actually, we can't necessarily um, use the exact same prescriptive. Techniques for every single account or for every single type of marketing out there, because there's so many other variables that are at play. So ultimately, what happened was that we decided that the you know the the powers to be of the Ford Foundation and all of the academics decided that we were disciplined and we're not a profession. And so that that is key because if we were considered a profession, there would be a certificate. So that would be the. Uh, CPAs out there, the CFAs out there, the actuaries that have to get certificates, um, all of the different types of insurance folks that are out there, those are all professional degrees. It's just that in the, you know, in the Ivory Tower, being part of a professional degree is not, doesn't have as much of a an elite status. But, um, you know, going looking forward, we're, I think we're at the point now, and because our discipline is so young in comparison to other areas within business that I think we are on the, the path going towards being a professional degree as opposed to being a, um, you know, a, a, being a, a discipline.
1: Right there real quick. Yeah. And, and I want to bring Brian and Beth in um, because this is where it gets fun, I think, is this next <laughs> part. And we're kind of grounded on, the, thank you for the history there. And it's mm-hmm. fascinating to me. I never knew a lot of that. Since I don't have, I didn't go get my PhD and understand the history of marketing. I'm not sure if Brian knew that history. I did not. um, And I think it's so relevant to our industry today and kind of um, what you said that we might be moving towards more of a profession rather than a discipline. Mm -hmm. So, So how is that relevant to today maybe is the question.
3: Sure. Um, So, as we're if we move towards a profession as opposed to being a discipline, um, we have to, for one thing, we kind of have to agree on what's going to be considered professional and what's going to be considered discipline. So, for the most part, any area of marketing analytics um, and digital marketing, since we're getting into those, are very prescriptive. Like you do have very set rules as far as like what you're looking at. If you think of the, if you think of like what's going on with any kind of digital marketing and the analytics behind digital marketing. It's much more like an accounting class than it is um, you know, going through your marketing communications and figuring out what email is best to write, like what types of words to use. So when we go from that direction, um, what would happen then with the profession is that there would need to be some sort of certificate um, or certification, and there would have to be continuing education credits that would allow us to... Um, you know, show that we know what we're doing and we've been keeping up with the industry. Um, and market research, you know, kind of got caught up in that. It's, we've let, like, kind of let that go. Um, market research has always been the area that has been much more um, of the professional side as opposed to the discipline side. Um, market research always has always been about how do you gather the data, how do you analyze the data, how do you interpret the data, um, you know, uh, making sure that we're asking the right questions. Um, And applying the scientific method to that. But we've kind of let that go. Um, And we're starting to see that now with the democratization of of data and the democratization of market research, we're starting to see that people just can assume that they can, anybody can do it because they've got these platforms that are convincing them through some degree of hubris that it's um, that it's easy peasy.
1: Yeah. And this is where you know I think that a lot of people have been saying this for a while. We've been saying this for a while that um, with, with the proliferation of DIY tools, um, which is where you were taking this discussion. Mm-hmm. Anyone, literally anybody today mm-hmm. can design a survey, mm-hmm. acquire a sample of that survey, mm-hmm. write a report yep. and put it on lots of different um, places and be a thought leader right you don't need any type of formal education in some ways that's an advantage for us that um anybody can do any kind of role but i have noticed for a long time that people didn't don't have questionnaire training background and now all of a sudden right. they're putting in a DOI tool they don't have a sample background they don't have the data processing background and now they're doing all of these disciplines mm-hmm. which different jobs is that 15 years ago that was probably six or six to ten different people would touch a job that one person is now doing that may or may not have any training. So that's always been kind of, I don't know, we've talked about it. Right.
4: Well, the quality of the report, that's the output from that type of uh, research project. There's no quality standards around that.
1: And there's no No. uh, peer review.
4: No, no, no. No.
3: And that's, you know, and and the thing is, I've been teaching market research now for about 12 years. And um, I can tell you, the logical fallacies that my students go through when they're writing, when they're writing questionnaires for the first time. And mm-hmm, so I, I've started using DIY tools and I started realizing like, oh, these stink. Like these surveys are, like, they're just using, they're going straight to the, um, you know, to, to stuff that's already been pre-populated. And like, they're not getting, they don't understand what the dependent variable is. They're writing surveys. They don't realize that they're not actually measuring the thing that they want to. They're reporting on all kinds of crazy things. And so, um, you know, I realized I kind of got to this moment. I was like, I don't understand how is this how is this happening? Like, this was about probably six or seven years ago. I realized, like, how is this how is this okay? How is the entire industry okay with this going the way it is? Because people are are pulling data, and and um, you know, like, we're there's an influx of surveys now because it's so inexpensive to to send out, you know, to your email list. That no one wants to fill out surveys. No one wants to sit down. They don't trust you that you're going to give them any kind of incentive, even if you do. Because we have a lot of bad actors in there that are doing this stuff. And it's there's no, it's like the wild, wild west. No one's following anything. And so looking at the logical fallacies of and working with my students, going through their logical fallacies and realizing how much I have to spend on like weeks, 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 lots of homework, lots of. Um, you know lots of lots of drafts of surveys and showing them lots of examples I thought to myself like how are these folks just going out in the world doing these things and so um, you know doing my own research and talking to people that do their own DIY they were like well you know it's just it's the when I need to get a decision made quickly and I don't have that big of a budget it's just easier to use the survey I know it's not great but it's it's good enough and so um, that's the type of like having a good enough type of a mentality is, um, it, it you know, it makes my, it makes my hair <laughs> stand up on the back of my neck because, um, not just my training, but also just because of how much, um, you know, the market research industry has always been there to help make decisions. And if we're and we've always stood by the garbage in garbage out, you know, uh, philosophy. And so if we're sending in, putting in garbage and spitting out garbage, then how are we making decisions anymore with just good enough types of, um, surveys? I mean, it's just, it's wild.
4: Who would trust the data that comes out of these good enough surveys? If, if decisions are being made at company levels, mm-hmm. brands making decisions and things are not going the way they expect, mm-hmm. you know, what happens to our reputation as a research industry? Right. Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> No, it's not. It's it's very scary. We, we've already that?
1: seen our reputation hindered by mm-hmm. political polling alone, right. yeah. which has about as strict rigor as possible in marketing research. Yeah. Right. And you can critique it because that's one of the few areas in research that we can um, look at data and then we can evaluate the success of the data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in most of marketing research, it really is the wild, wild west. And you mentioned, I think, Turk, which is big with yeah. um, academic and the yeah. academic world, which is really bad sample is what I would say. I, oh, it's not even,
3: it's, I mean, bad sample is like, is being polite.
1: It's okay. garbage,
3: it's complete garbage. Why, who, who is gonna take my survey for 25 cents? Who? <laughs> I don't care about the incidence level. Who's gonna take, who's gonna spend their time for 25 uh, cents?
4: Unless right.
1: You do, who are they? <laughs> so, so we have a lot of factors going into this. We have bad sample. We have uneducated users of DIY tools. Mm-hmm. For the most part, I'm not saying everybody across the board, mm-hmm. but we have very few people in our entire industry that are trained on all aspects of marketing research. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, very, very few. Right. right. Um, and so this is causing lots of problems just on the um, designing and helping businesses make business decisions. Mm-hmm then to making things more complex is what you talked about next, which then, I I think you got to a slide when you presented this in Chicago and we never got off the slide. I (laughs) think we had about 200 200 questions (laughs) when you talked about um, um, HIPAA violations and Mm -hmm. privacy. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine all these things, we're not accredited. We um, have the data democratization, as you said, anybody can Mm -hmm. do things. And now all of a sudden we have privacy, very strict privacy laws either in place now or coming mm-hmm. soon Yeah. along with HIPAA. You pull that together, that's a recipe for disaster, right?
3: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the fact that, yeah, I mean, it, th- there's nobody to report to. There's nobody to say like, hey, so I mean, I think I think one of the things that's going on is that um, surveys are omnipresent. We have literally no idea. I'm hoping that we can do this, uh, track this research at one point, but to count how many surveys people come across in one week. I mean, it's just, it's gone up so much. It used to be a rare thing when somebody would be asked to to participate in a survey. But if I ask my students now, first of all, they don't even know, like they don't even know what they would consider a survey because Uh most of the time what, you know, they, they get emails or they get text messages and they're like, oh yeah, right. Or they get, you know, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? They don't know, there's just, it's just everywhere. It's so omnipresent. That it's something that we just kind of ignore, but we have, we don't have anybody overseeing us. There's no, we've always allowed, been allowed, and and for good reason, we've always been allowed to explore and go through and uh, ask people questions, to be able to help our companies and help our brands to be able to go back to being market oriented. So like to make sure that we're making the products that um, meet the needs and wants of customers, but as we go forward and as things are going, being more individualized, it gets harder and harder to um, to be able to, to wrangle that. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, to me, it's just, it's, uh, it's wild. And it's something that, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little and saying that the, you know, that the sky is falling, but there is something beckoning on our, you know, coming around the corner, that's going to be not so good for the industry. Um, And we need to take we need to take a big, long, hard stare at and and stance about figuring out what exactly we want to do about this, Um, because it's not it's not helpful to the brands who are conducting their own research. It's not helpful to the vendors who have been who live and die on their reputation and it's not helpful to the diy vendors because their platforms can be changed overnight by a by any kind of legal regulation that's happening. So we shouldn't be blindsided by this. We should be thinking about this from a more proactive perspective. You know, this is not just like oh somebody might come in and steal my identity through through email. This is not we're we're past that. That's spam. You know, we're thinking this is more of how how is it possible that I can be going onto a survey into a a DIY survey platform and asking any question I want that, you know, like it's that if I was at a university level, I have to go through something called the Institutional Review Board. It's IRB and uh, folks from other countries, universities, they have to go through something. It's called the Ethics Board. It's the same thing. It's just different countries. And I have to have every single survey reviewed by them. I have to put in an explanation of the sample that I'm using and I have to justify it. So at the university level, I have been like years of training and making sure that I'm not going to be hurting or harming anybody by asking these questions. If I still have to go through these committees. And then when we've got our um, industry partners going through and and making sure that they're actually being compliant, how is it possible that these um, that these DIY firms are out there just letting people write whatever they want and collect whatever the information they have. And we don't know what they're, you know, we, we would, we're operating this under the assumption that they're just gathering data, but no one knows what kind of data is being, is being um, monitored. No one knows what kind of information they're asking people. And the one thing we do know is that if you pay people enough or you promise to pay them enough, they'll tell you whatever they want. It's a trade-off for them. If you say, I'm gonna give you a $100, and, uh, $100 um, thank you gift, um, but you need to tell me some more information I mean that's that's could be a very bad actor that's that's easily doing that and then never paying them
4: it hurts our industry too because there's so many places where we're fighting against legislation that groups us in with other types of industries mm-hmm. and you have mm-hmm. a few of the DIY platforms and people who are not educated about legislation go out and break all these rules it just it makes it so much harder for our industry to have reputation and stay out of uh, you know some of its other federal legislation that's out there I mean how find them. He's constantly working to try to keep us separated as an industry and keep our industry um, following the right rules and regulations so we don't get lumped in. And this is just, you know, it's really hard when bad actors, as you say, are uneducated about the rules and the legislation.
3: Well, sure. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, I would love to see how often people are writing surveys. um, If I remember correctly, there's it's in my textbook or it's one of the textbooks. I I think it's called slugging or it's where you send out a survey, and then at the end, it turns into a sales pitch. Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) So how often is that happening? And how often that's going to hurt us? I mean, we have, it's already hard enough. I mean, think about, so if we want to look at everything out there of like all the things that are going on. So if we look at all of our public policy polls, and all of our public policy um, surveys that are run. So like, our unemployment numbers are run through surveys. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get people to answer the phone. We don't necessarily trust that people are gonna answer that the right people are actually answering their um, email. So we've already been decreasing. It's harder harder and harder to get in touch with these folks. And then we're gonna have all these other uh, people that are um, not showing any kind of um, ethics in um, asking because it's not, they're not actually helping anything. They're not, they're, you know, there's a lot of stuff of what we're doing where we're overwhelming consumers with how much opinions we want them to, to fill out. I mean, it's just, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious if we really need to know if we need to track somebody at every single transaction that they have with a firm. Do we need to know how it went? Um, and how is it being used? Is it being used for employee training? or Are you going to fire them? <laughs>
4: So
3: <laughs> how, what kind of insights are we getting from that?
4: Brooke, I'm wondering in this presentation, did you get to suggestions and recommendations? Because Brian came back and I think he was probably in town for an hour and he's texting me. We got to talk. We got to talk. We got to talk. I just heard this presentation. It flips things upside down. We have to talk about this. Did you actually get to recommendations? Is something that Insights Association should own? Like, where do you see this going?
3: So I think that there's a few things that we need to do. The first is um, one of the areas that I was talking about is that the, the, one of the reasons why these DIY platforms have been able to do whatever they want is because of Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act. Section 230 was created in the 90s uh, when, the, um, when the internet was just kind of getting up and going. And the idea was that let the you can't sue a platform um with somebody else's publications you know whatever that other those other publications are are going on whatever that so the communications decency act is being reviewed right now because i think we can all agree that the internet has grown to the point where it doesn't need any more protections and so but that then that is like yeah that's freaking people out even more of like what does that mean where can that go where you know what is what is all where is that going so for one thing we need to think about um like, what do we want to do as an, as an industry if that, like, what would we want to see from an ethics perspective if all of a sudden we have some sort of regulation that's saying what we can do and what we can't do? Do we want to have an organization or a person be certified to answer these questions? Do we want to have these platforms have a bot that goes through and says, no, you can't download this information. You can't ask these questions. This is a HIPAA violation. Do we want to make sure that they're trained to some degree that makes sure that their PII is not, um, and you know that makes sure that the PII is, is encrypted, um, and that is separate from their opinion uh, research. We have a lot of things of how we want to see how things will go, and thinking really forwardly, like the next fifty years. Um, like we really have to, we can't just think five years. We have to really think super long term out, uh, out, out, out. And the other thing is, do we want to have, do we want to be pressing more of each organization should be getting ISO certified, or do we want to push more of the insights association certification level? Because if we're going to get to the point where we have folks that are being certified, it's, there's reasons why we would want to. The first thing is, is that if, you know, and, it would, and it's gonna to have to come from somewhere, it's gonna to have to either come from the Insights Association saying like, enough is enough, we can't do this anymore. We saw this recently from another discipline within the registered dietitians. Registered dietitians said, we can't just have people just going, getting in their bachelors and getting, and getting certified. This is not okay. So they required people to get their masters to then get certified. And you can't be a registered dietitian and work anywhere without a certification. So do we want to build that up from internal and say you can't work in a market research firm without some degree of certification or a master's? But master's is even we can't we, we can't. Um, uh, without a certification, we can't make sure that the curriculum is the same everywhere. Um, hmm. And so we would need to make sure, like, what do we want as a consensus and like who are the major thought leaders about where we want to go? So there's, so there's a couple things or, you know, and we have to think about what we want to do. I personally think that we need to, for the future, because marketing analytics is, you know, we're, we're kind of going through this, it, it, You know, sorry, it's a, it's hard to, it, it's hard to articulate, but um, because marketing is such a newer discipline in comparison to all the other disciplines within the, within business administration, we're, we're kind of like, we're like going past the teenage years into our adult years. You know, if we consider ourselves that economics has been around since 4000 BC and we've only been around for 100 years, like maybe we've been like toddlers for the past little while of trying to figure out what the heck we are. Marketing analytics is its own discipline at this point. We it is our one of, the, one of the main theories that marketing owns. And so um, that, I, that area I think needs to get certified. I think that we cannot have people that are going out and saying like, yeah, I took a marketing analytics course and I just use this platform and it tells me what to do. I think we need to have folks along the lines, same lines as the actuaries being certified. And I think that marketing analytics and market research need to um, you know, join, join hands um, and agree the fact that even though market research is more about gathering data and doing uh, more opinion and, and um, attitude-based research, and marketing analytics tends to be more behavioral research, that the two areas need to link hands about how are we appropriately um, gathering data, storing data, um, and making sure that we're compliant from a data privacy perspective. Because we have companies, I mean, I'm sure you guys have come across this before where you're working with a brand and legal just gets in the way and it's like, nope, sorry, PII is there, can't get the data well we've stripped it and we're going to um you know we have anonymized it can i can i give them the data nope sorry can't do that and so you instead of these like hurdles with legal if we have somebody who's certified and we know that they know how to separate the data that is a risk mitigation for the uh, firm at many levels um so there's 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 that. And then we also have to think about, um, you know, now that we're coming across this, I don't, I can't remember what it's called. It's not, it's like the new safe Harbor, the agreement between Europe and um, and, uh, the US and the U S and our data data transactions. We have to start thinking about how, what does that look like? Because GDPR is much more strict for, uh, for privacy and how we're allowed to use PII than in the U S. So, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like. I don't. I never want to sound like a like Chicken Little, but I, I see big problems ahead if we don't come to consensus about what we want to do.
1: Um, I completely agree, and I want to back up just a real quick. I would encourage everyone to Google Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act. I did, and um, I think how it's relevant for most of us for researchers are that typically a company like Qualtrics or Focus Vision would be immune from legislation if like a HIPAA violation occurred, right? Mm-hmm. In almost all cases. And it wasn't designed for Qualtrics, it was designed for lots of things on the internet, lots of different platforms. Right. But I just, on my research, I'm sure you're, you've done more than me, Congress is considering 14 bills that could amend section 230, which mm-hmm. repeal it or limit the scope. And yep. that, if that happens, then we're gonna be forced yeah. To somehow figure this out. And I don't know if we want someone that Qualtrics determining this right. oversight. Right. right. I yeah. I, I mean, so. Qu-
3: right. Qualtrics, Qualtrics is in it for themselves. Like, I mean, I, like they're a great platform. I use them. I have I teach my students how to do it, how to use them. AYTM is great, too. You know, they have beautiful graphics. There's a lot of really good things out there. I haven't used SurveyMonkeys in a long time. But there's, you know, and and the thing is, uh, you know, every big research vendor is always like, well, you know, we have our own DIY tool too. Well, there yeah. we're all every single DIY tool out there, and 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 I do dif- disagree. I know that the Insights Association just came out with um, another uh, report saying that there it's still two, uh, the DIY um, market is still two percent. I disagree with that. I think it's closer to they because they consider hubspot and all the digital uh, analytics uh, uh, areas separate and that's 17% i think that we're actually talking about 20% of the market and when we're talking about 20% of a 960 billion dollar market I mean, that's pretty big um, and that's only what we know about you know there's still there's still figure we have to figure out how we're actually going to like calculate this and what what's considered self service and you know, yeah. if I create a dashboard, is that considered self-service? Like, what what are all of these things? And we, it really comes down to um, you know following along and looking at where data is and where data is going, and how data is being used, um, and particularly within the marketing um, organization and the marketing department. And one of the things that I also talked about in my um, talk was about data democratization. So we've got this big push on everybody wanting to be able to get access to all the data at any given moment. And so there are these insights engines that are being uh, built that cost millions of dollars at big, huge firms. So like Unilevers and your Walmarts. My husband, he's a consultant who works with Mayo Clinic. Um, They're doing um, something with, uh, with, with data democratization. Um, we, I just talked to some, my, one of my friends, who's, um, doing something with the data democratization for all of her vendors. She does, she deals with, um, she's a retailer. And so we don't want to, we want to be in a position where we don't have somebody who's a paper pusher, which I totally get. But at the same time, we're just running with all this data and your data is just going left and right. All the, all these different places. And it's very personal information that we provide and there, there's just there's a lot of um, information that, that's out and being gathered about us, and being sold and brokered, and you know, fifty times over a day, um, that we have we can't keep a, a a good we don't have a good handle on. That's one of the reasons why GDPR was created. Um, I happened to be living in Romania for a year when GDPR was first initially launched. My husband created the Center of Excellence for PwC uh, Europe. While he was out there, so I that was a big dinner conversation is all the different areas about GDPR, um, <laughs> and so I know we're a bunch of boring people over at my house, um, but we you know thinking about all of the ways that we can um, that uh, that where there you know once once GDPR came out and there was all these reports about things that happened. So like for example, um, GDPR was is was used for um, a lot of governments that were. Uh, less than ethical to um, to be able to just go ahead and, and create fines for people. If, oh, you know they asked Uber, um, they find when I was when I was living there, Romania find Uber because Uber was a- um, asking people for their location and they were gathering their location for where they needed to get picked up, and that violated GDPR. And so they find them many, millions of euros. Um, which obviously there's no way that Uber could operate without asking for somebody's location. Um, but well, but the other thing too, is that trying to understand how, like how, what kinds of data is out there and what's being misused. So there was, um, a report of, a of a German, um, who asked Amazon to send all of his Alexa recordings, because we know that Alexa is just constantly recording us. Um, and he was given, uh, like 72 hours of tape. Um, for somebody else's conversation, somebody else that it wasn't him, it wasn't his house, it was somebody else's house. And so we've got a lot of things that we like, you know, that's, that's a big problem from a consumer privacy perspective and also from a company perspective, from a reputation perspective. It's hard mm-hmm. to keep track of data. I mean, anybody who's had to deal with databases, that was one of the key things that I learned being, a, you know, um, an intern and doing market research, being an our market research analyst at a bank. Was that trying to keep track of all the different data that's going across all the different databases, and uh, you know all the different types of errors that come up when you're trying to merge that? And then where do you save the data? How do you use the data? Um, I mean, these are some of the key questions that I think, as a as a marketing analyst, you have to you know, you really have to spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics of it. Um, okay. Anyway, sorry, I've been yeah. I could talk about
1: this all day long. I don't (laughs) want to. So I'm not sure. Originally, I thought this would, the solution would be forced out of Europe because they seem to be ahead of the U.S. in terms of like privacy and regulation and data. There's probably more distrust of marketing and marketing research in Europe than there is in the U.S. But I think if Section 230 changes, that's going to force in the U.S. So to me- I don't know what your goal is, like by this talk. My guess is to raise awareness. I think we should be talking to people at SMR about this. We should be talking yeah. to Insights Association, Melvin yeah. Howard, Kristen, and Lisa Wadding Brown at SMR, and starting to build awareness to this, and um, maybe a committee forums of some sort that offer suggestions for the industry. Yeah, I
3: I agree. I mean, I I don't want to be. So the thing is, is we don't. We can see what happens when uh, lawmakers make decisions for us, and then we get caught. In the, we get caught in the crossfire. Um, you know, nobody saw what was going to, nobody realized what was going to happen in California when they changed their uh, incentive or whatever. I can't remember how the law was written, but it wound up being that incentives were going to have to be at the hourly wage, and you're going to have to report it, and blah blah blah. So all of that stuff, like we were caught in the crossfire with it because we didn't see it coming. And so I think there needs to be a forward-looking committee that is saying, okay, so what would this look like now? Because now there is just, it's so easy to collect data that it's, you know, you can have the servers that are buried under the ocean that are collecting all this data and storing it into these big data lakes. What do we see our industry doing? And how, you know, and from an academic perspective, how can the academics help too? Because you have a lot of folks that while not doing this stuff day to day, we've been trained uh, for years. I mean, going through a PhD is five years. Um, You know, we have to go through all those super advanced analytics, have to go through all the ethics training, we have to go through all everything for that, but what, how can the two areas merge together because it's not just what's happening within the industry it's what's being it's what's being trained at the university and the master's level um, to be able to get folks to be more aware of this and I can train my students, but that's only you know 100 students a year. Um, We need to think about this from a broader perspective, because there's um, in the U.S., there's 650 schools that offer marketing as a major, and um, most of those have market research as a requirement. So we have to assume at any given year, there's probably, you know, 10 to 15,000 students or maybe more that are getting trained in this and are at least being exposed to it. So what do we want? What kind of information do we want to be, have people think of? And it's not necessarily train them, it's get them to think about <laughs> um, right. so that we can start thinking more um, about, you know, how, how, we can, how we can help and also protect um, the companies and the brands and protect our industry with reputation
1: for, for both sides. Well said, maybe I'll get final thoughts from people. Brian, any final thoughts on this topic? Are you scared now?
0: (laughs) Are you thoroughly scared? No. Depressed, maybe. (laughs) Um, I can see it, too. If going just back to the Section 230 thing, it's going to get caught up because really the target of that is bigger fish, your Facebooks, your Twitters, your Googles. And we're going to get caught up in that big net. Yep. You can see it coming. Yes.
4: Beth,
1: any final thoughts? What do you think? Is research going to end? What's going on? What's no, going to no, happen? Research
4: will <laughs> not end. No, I, I think it's really important that we do something now, which is, I think, your point. Like, let's make the awareness bold. Let's get people in front of this and start thinking forward about the potential impact. I think that's really key. Um, it's not something I would have ever thought about at this point. So. You know, I just feel like that awareness and getting people focused on it now is really the key to not getting caught in the crossfire, as you said. So it is pretty scary. Yeah, and I'm not totally surprised because we've talked about the dangers of DIY in other ways. And this just, you know, really makes um, yeah, a more scary proposition. Yeah.
1: Brooke, thank you for coming on. Um, any final thoughts? And do you want people to reach out to you? Usually I get let people promote themselves. I'm not sure if you want people to reach out to you. you <laughs> might get sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Know. I mean, this
3: is, this is still something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm researching and writing about. And so I'm happy to always have any kind of conversation about it. Um, you know, it's, it's good to get people's feedback, too, because, um, you know, maybe somebody has a totally different perspective uh, that I'm happy to hear. And if so, then then great.
1: Okay, and how can people reach you on LinkedIn?
3: LinkedIn is great, yep. So um, Brooke Revy, or you can, um, if you Google me, I'm the only one out there, so. <laughs>
1: oh, wow, that's
4: awesome. Wow, that's
1: amazing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this more. Um, in the coming weeks and months and years, likely, this will never go away. This is our first exposure to it, uh, yeah. at least for me. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time.
3: All right. Thank you. <laughs>